Well, if you want to turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, and we are going to be uh, watching a, a quick a quick video, actually, to kind of prime the pump for this. So, um, Joe, you can get that going. All right. Well, there's a, there's a lot in that video, but I want to, I shared it because it touches on some of the major themes that we're going to get into in the book of Jeremiah. And if you remember at the beginning, it talked about three big themes. We've got the accusation that what the prophets do, they, they accuse the people of Israel of breaking the covenant, of breaking the relationship that God established with Israel. And then they call, there's a call to repentance, to, to come back. And then this video talked about it using the language of the day of the Lord, but basically there's a, a warning of judgment, which is if you're against God, it's, it's a warning, right? If, it's, if you're with God, right? if, if you're part of the people that have repented and turned to God, then it's actually a good day, right? The day of the Lord or that day of judgment is, is time of celebration. And so today we're going to focus on that first theme, the the theme of the prophets being, uh, being uh, accusers. They're accusers on behalf of God. They're lawyers, in a sense. And we're going to see here that there is a, there's a big courtroom scene going on, and Jeremiah, on God's behalf, is acting as uh, God's lawyer to say to Israel, you guys are guilty of breaking the covenant. Now, this isn't just you're guilty of breaking law, Maybe the best analogy I think that we have for an idea of a covenant or a partnership is in a marriage, right? That there's a, and in fact, Jeremiah often uses the language and the imagery of marriage to talk about God's relationship with Israel. We'll see that in this text and throughout Jeremiah and the other prophets do it as well. So what Jeremiah is accusing Israel of doing essentially is saying, you've walked away from this marriage. You have abandoned the partnership. You have abandoned God. It's a, it's a relational type language. So you could even narrow it down a little bit more. Jeremiah is not just a, a lawyer who is uh, bringing the charges for God to Israel, but in a sense he's sort of a divorce lawyer actually, saying this is why this relationship has disintegrated and this is the result of it. So I, I was joking, Colby asked me this morning what, I, what the big idea of the message was, and I said, well, basically it's this. You're guilty. Okay? But uh, <clears throat> there's a little bit more to it than that. We'll get into that. But really, it's, it's this, it's that Israel is crazy, and that we're crazy if we exchange God for anything else. That's really the core of the accusation here, is that Israel has taken the presence of the holy, living, personal, glorious God and exchanged him for idols. So let's take a minute and, and pray, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit's guidance on us today. Father God, I just want to thank you for your word. And even when we come to challenging passages like this, Lord, I pray that your spirit will enable us to see and to understand and to search our own hearts and see where we need to heed the call to repent or to hear the hope of your vindication. Whatever it might be, Lord, guide us in that right path. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... We're going to see a few things in this courtroom drama. We're going to see there's these charges, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And our main goal is to understand this section of the Bible. And I really appreciate you guys as a church not only allowing John and I just to spend time with you every Sunday to just seek to understand the text, but I actually, I'm, I'm pleased that you guys ask us to do that 
So I'm taking that permission and that request, and we're, we're, that's what we're going to try to do. Let's understand the text of Jeremiah, and then we'll apply it there at the end. But we all want to understand. Our main goal is to understand this, this dense piece of the Bible. Secondly, there's a defense. So Israel says, hold on, you know, let, let us speak. We'll offer a defense, so we'll see what Israel's defense is. And then finally, there's the verdict. So let's start with our charges. We've got a few different categories here. First thing we see is that they have exchanged, right? That's, that's the key idea, is that they've made a trade. They've made a terrible trade. And the, the first part of the trade is that they have exchanged everything for nothing. They've got everything, they get nothing. Let's start reading in chapter 2, verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. This is God speaking. Right? How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. So, just stop right there, pause right there. Israel is remembering, or God is remembering back to that time when Israel was in the wilderness. And he's sort of portraying this as a sort of a honeymoon period. This is a first, you know, everything was great at the beginning. You trusted in me, I provided everything you needed. I gave you everything, and you, you, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. You, you trusted after me. Now, that's just a glimpse of the wilderness period, because we know, and other prophets tell us too, that there's actually quite a bit of rebellion in there. But if God's going to point back to at least one thing, he's like, remember that you had something there. There was a time when all was right. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did you fi- your ancestors find with me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. So they had everything that they needed in God. And then, you know, even he gave them everything they needed in the wilderness. They go into the land. He gives them everything in the land. And then he says, what fault did you find with me? What did I do wrong? I gave you everything, God says. And what fault did you find with me that you... You strayed. You turned away. And look what he says here. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. That word that's translated in the NIV, worthless idols, it's one word in the Hebrew. It's the word hevel, or hevel, hevel. And if you say it in the right way, it sort of sounds like, sounds like what it is. It's a, it's a breath. Hevel. It's a breath. And now, the reason why I'm most familiar with this word is because it's, it's probably the key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. How does Ecclesiastes start? Well, depending on your translation, it goes meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. It's just a chasing after the wind. There's all this action, all this motion, all this stuff, but nothing ever really changes. It's, it's, it's meaningless. That's the word hevel. So what's, what's he saying here? You have followed nothingness. You have followed meaninglessness. You have followed chasing after the wind. And then what he says, that's what you followed. What have you become? You've become, they've become nothing themselves. There's a principle here, and that is we become like what we worship, or we become like who we follow. Walter Brueggemann, in, a, in an, an interpretation here, speaking on this, he says, one takes on the character of the God one follows. One takes on the character of the God one follows. Loyalty one has towards any God is decisive for shaping of human life. We become like the God we serve. So they followed a nothingness. They followed a worthless idol. They become a nothing. They become worthless themselves. Right? See how that principle fits in? We become like who we serve. Let's say 
Instead of following God, we follow money. Money is our God, and we put that above everything else. And we're driven by greed. What are, what are the characteristics of money? Well, money is, uh, is something that's fickle. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's something that is uncaring, right? It doesn't care. There's a, there's a cruelty even to it. And so if we make money our God, we become uncaring. We become fickle. We become cruel. You see how that works? We become like the God we serve. Or if we have a false image of the real God, we're going to become like that false image and not his, who he is in reality. Do we see that? So we have to both follow the real God and have a real understanding, a picture of him. Otherwise, our character is going to be shaped by the actual God that we're serving. That's an important principle to see. Now let's keep reading on. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? Through the land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance inheritance detestable. So he said, I I brought you into this beautiful land, this beautiful place, this, this second Eden, if you will, and you just defiled it. You made this place garbage, right? How did they do that? We'll see they did it through idolatry. They did it through social injustice. They defiled the land. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. It started with the leadership. It was a leadership failure. Everybody else followed right along. So they had everything they needed from God, and they traded in for heaven. They traded in for worthlessness. So that's the first accusation. Jeremiah brings another one. He says, you've traded in the living water for broken cisterns. You've traded in the living water for broken cisterns. Let's see what he says next. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. That's go the other, other look everywhere you can. That's what he's saying. See if there's anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. See, there's the language of the trade, of the exchange. They've exchanged the glorious presence of God for a worthless idol. He goes on to explain. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. So the imagery here is he's saying, listen, you, you had in the presence of God, you had a spring of living water. I was the spring of living I was the source of all of your life. I was the source of everything that you had, that you could ever want, and you, you turned away from me, and I said, you know, we, we still need some life. So let's go over here, let's dig out our own cisterns. And we'll fill it, we'll make this nice, right? And, and we'll, that's where we're going to get water from. Think about this broken, the futility of a broken cistern, especially when you've got the source of living water. Life is springing up for this. Does a, does a cistern produce water? No. And what happens, if, even if you dump all your life that you can into the broken cistern, will it hold water? No. It, 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 not, only, it not only doesn't produce any life, these idols don't produce life, God is saying, they actually just drain out any life you pour into that. 
You've exchanged the living water for a broken cistern. Foolish craziness. I, I, I think you see this sometimes when, when somebody has... Um, they, God gives before them relationships amongst the people of God that, that will help them grow and help them give them life, right? And yet they, could be, they can be drawn away by a friendship or by a pure relationship of, of another relationship. For some reason, they're just drawn away by this other relationship. And they, and they can pour life into that relationship and pour as much as they can. And, and, and what's that relationship going to do if it's taking them away from God? It just sucks life out of them again and again and again. That's the broken sister. They've set something up that they want more than God. They've exchanged what God has given them, and they've created their own broken sister. We're going to see that the way that Israel did this particularly was by following after, or by yeah, following foreign gods, of course, but, but also following in the footsteps of other nations, trying to get other nations on their side, something they weren't supposed to do. All right, so third then, they have exchanged sonship for slavery. Sonship for slavery. Let's keep reading on. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? No. I'm just going to answer this right now. Was Israel a slave by birth? No. God, God has called them out, and, and when he calls them out of Egypt, he calls them his son. So God said, you, Israel, you, you are my son. I have a particular, special relationship with you. When I birthed you, were you a slave? No. You were my child. And they says, why then has he become plunder? In other words, why, why is he treated like a slave right now if he's a son? And then we get the answer. Long ago, you broke off the yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. We're, we're skipping through a few verses here. I'm just trying to give a representative sample here. So now this is down in verse 20. But, but here's what he's saying. You, you, Israel, you broke off your yoke and you tore off your bonds. Israel was not a slave, but they imagined themselves to be a slave of God. And so they said, no, 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 no. We're not going to follow you, God. We're going to break off our chains from you. We're going to run away from you. We're just going to do our own thing. They misunderstood the nature of their relationship. God says, you're my son. And they say, no, I'm, I, it's so restrictive, God. This covenant is, is too hard. I don't want to follow. We're going to break it off. We're going to go our own way. This is, um, this is like... The prodigal son, right? That Jesus tells, the prodigal son. Where the, the son's got everything in his father's house. And, and the son says, you know what? I, I just want all my stuff right now. I don't want you, father, want to go out on my own. I'm going to break off my chains, right? And now this is doubly ironic because what was most essential in the formation of the nation of Israel? It was when God broke off their actual, real, literal chains in Egypt. To make them his son. What a tragic misunderstanding of their relationship. Jumping down to verse 22, he says this. See how you have behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. So you, you, what have you become? You, you, you went from a, a son, and now he's using this prophetic language to describe them as in animalistic terms. As just a wild donkey who smells something on the wind and, and gets a craving and runs after that. Uh, if you want the full picture of this, right, read, read the passage. Jeremiah's not pulling any punches here. 
He said, you just have these cravings. You just go after whatever you want. You thought you were going to become free by breaking off your bonds. And in fact, you become a slave. A slave to your own cravings. A slave to your own desires. A slave to whatever your, your whims might be. That's not freedom. That can be maybe a, a certain picture of freedom that we get from some people in the world, right? But that's not the biblical picture of freedom. The biblical picture of freedom is is a following as is being free to serve God, who He has created us to be, free to be the people He's created us to be. So they have exchanged sonship for slavery. Fourth, we see that they have exchanged salvation for destruction. Salvation for destruction. They say to what? You are my father, and to stone you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save me. Come and save us. So they say, you do all these terrible things. You set up your idol, you make your little piece of wood and stone, and you say, you're my father. You're my mother. And then they, they turn away from God, right? They offensively turn their backs to the God who, who created them and gave them everything and called them his son. And then a time of trouble comes. Oh, now we're in trouble. What are we going to do now? Oh, hey God, come and save us. Now, are we supposed to do it when we're in trouble? Yeah, we are, of course, right? That's exactly part of the call to repentance, right? Acknowledge your God. Is that what they're doing here? What do you think? We're going to see it's not. Here's what here, because here's God's response. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come and save you when you are in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. In other words, they're not, this is not true and genuine repentance on Israel's sake, right? This is not an actual wanting to turn to God. This is, we're going to do all the evil we can. We're going to set up in every town. We're going to have a God or more, right? We're going to do all these things that God tells us not to do until the trouble comes, and then we'll say, oh yeah, that God, he, he, he can save us, right? Now let's go to him. But, but there's no heart change. There's no transformation. There's no actual desire. They're fickle. Right? And so what does God say? All right. You've got some gods. Go to them. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. So we see down in verse 36 here. It's not only the following after the other gods, but now we see it's they have gone to other nations. They have misunderstood what was going on? They have misdiagnosed their problem. Verse 37. You also leave that place with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. They have seen, as, as Israel has gone into a steady decline, they have said, oh no, we have a political, uh, we, have a, we have a national crisis on our hands. Therefore, we are going to try to find a political and national and militaristic solution. But the reality is that they had a, the problem that they had is that they had turned away from their God. And so then when they try to find the political solution, going to Assyria, going to Egypt, which God had previously told them not to do, and they knew not to do it, they tried to find, they misdiagnosed their problem, so they misdiagnosed their cure. They came up with the wrong cure. And they came up with a cure that was actually self-destructive, because they were trusting in the wrong thing. Right? It's like, 
It's like, you know, before we, we made advances in medical practice, right? And we said, oh, you're, you're sick, right? So let's go to the apothecary or, I don't know, just making up that word. Let's go there and, and put a leech on you and do some bloodletting through leeches, right? It was a counterproductive effort. And Israel's doing that. They have misdiagnosed. They've, they've come to a counterproductive solution, going to these false gods, going to these other nations. God says, they're going to let you down. You could have trusted in me for salvation. You trusted in the wrong place for salvation. You went exactly the way you weren't supposed to go. You've exchanged salvation from the one true God for destruction. Feeling good? All right. We've got to hear the word of the Lord, right? Fifth here, they have exchanged faithfulness for faithlessness. They've exchanged faithfulness for faithlessness. Chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. If we go on reading, we see that Jeremiah, of course, continues to expand on this, this theme. And, and now we've got that we talked about the picture of a father-son relationship. Another major imagery of, is that of a husband-wife. We talked about that at the beginning. Right? Where God is a husband to Israel. Israel is God's wife. And that's a covenant, faithful marriage relationship. And God is faithful, faithful, faithful in a crazy way to this covenant. And we're going to see next time we, just how insane God's faithfulness actually is to Israel. It boggles the mind. Because as it says here, right, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, first of all, that, right, what Israel is the one that has abandoned. So God did not initiate this. Israel has abandoned. Okay? In that sort of situation, does, does the man say, wife, come on back? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really judge someone to do that. I wouldn't recommend that. But God is actually, although as Israel has gone away again and again and again and again, God still says, Come back, come back, come back, come back. It's a crazy kind of faithfulness that God has for his people. And yet, what has Israel done in the faith, face of this faithfulness of God? Exchanged for what? Many lovers. And who are those lovers? The fickle nations. The idols that they have created. The worthlessness that they have followed. And quite frankly, the abusive boyfriend. They've exchanged their faithful husband for an abusive boyfriend. A string of them. That's the idea that Jeremiah wants us to see. They, they've turned away from the God who had, who had their back in everything, gave them everything they needed for whatever the whims they had at the time that ultimately proved self-destructive. So those are our charges. Now, let's dig in a little bit to a few of these. What does, so we said what they, what they turned from, the faithful God... What they turn to, the faithless, abusive boyfriends, okay? What does that turning look like? How did they do this? And we see there's three things in this text. One is idolatry. And we're going to expand a lot more on idolatry as we go through this series. But just briefly, I want to say, idolatry is when we take anything that's not God, any created thing, and we set that up as our God. We follow that, we prioritize that above following God. So that's idolatry. Secondly, there is a reliance on worldly powers, a reliance on worldly powers. Let's reread uh, verse 17. It says, Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? 
Now, why go to Egypt and drink water from the Nile? And why go to Assyria and drink water from the Euphrates? This is right after the, you've exchanged the living water for the broken cistern. Here, Jeremiah is, is identifying what the broken cisterns are. It's your political alliance with, with Assyria. It's your political alliance with Egypt. And so what Israel has done is they said, we, we need to find a solution. Where, where should we go to fight off Babylon? Well, we need some allies. And what's sort of scary about this is it just makes a lot of sense. If I'm th just thinking from a worldly perspective, just thinking, how do things work in a war? You go and find your ally. You find somebody to come and help save you. There, there, there's a sense to this. There's a wisdom to this. But because it's something that God has forbidden them to do, it's foolishness. But they have, they have trusted in the wrong thing, essentially, is what's happening. And then finally, there's violence and oppression. Violence and oppression. Verse 34, here's the accusation that Jeremiah brings. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. In other words, it says, you, you've, you have become rich. And we're going to see later in Jeremiah how especially this, this gets to the wealthy, the kings, those who have built nicer rooms, nicer palaces, and how have they done it? They've done it by oppressing the poor. So I say, you've oppressed the poor. You've gone your own way. You've done your own thing. Now, I think that these three are related. These are not three distinct problems that Israel has had that are just different compartments. They're three expressions of the same thing, which is an exchange of God for their own way. In the first one, it's an exchange in worship. Instead of worshiping after God, they have worshiped idols. Secondly, it's an exchange of trust. Instead of trusting in God... They have trusted in false in, in other nations. And then this is another kind of an exchange. Instead of, instead of following the Torah, instead of following the law that God had put before them, which elevated justice for all people, which elevated caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan, instead of following that way, they have said, no, we're going to go our own way. And that means we're just going to get the things we want. And if that means that we have to oppress and push down some people while we get there, that's okay. Because they have abandoned God's law and they have abandoned God's way and they said we're going to go our own way. So all of these are expressions of that just desire to exchange of God's way for our way. Make sense? All right, now let's see what their defense is. I'm just going to warn you off the top of my head, just off the bat, it's not a very good defense. Okay? And you're not going to be convinced by it. But let's read it. First one is this. No, 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 we're innocent. How can you say, this is God saying to them, I am not defiled, I am not an after God, other God. So they're saying, no, 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 we didn't do that, God. See how you've behaved in the valley, consider what you've done. In other words, the evidence contradicts your claim of innocence. Chapter 2, verse 35, you say, I am innocent. He is not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you because you have said I have not sinned. In other words, not only have you actually sinned, and it's a lie that you say you're innocent, but the, your lie actually makes you doubly guilty. All right, our second one. How about this? Hey, okay, we did it. You caught us. But we couldn't help it. You say, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. I've got no choice. Don't you understand? I just, I just have to do this. There's no other way. I've got to do it. Is that true? 
God doesn't buy this argument. God is not just going to let them shirk responsibility and say, oh, I know, I can't, I can't help it. It's not my fault. They're just trying to get out of it at this point. And then third, we're sorry. Have you not just called me? This is the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 4 here. Have you not just called me my father, my friend from my youth? So now, now there's, we've got the sweet talk going. Oh man, I love you so much, God. You're my father, you're my friend from my youth. Will you always be angry with me? Are you always going to be mad at me? Will your wrath continue forever? But this is God's judgment. This is how you talk. But you do all the evil you can. It's just words. Israel's apology is just words. You talk a good game, but you do all the evil you can. So what's the verdict? The evidence speaks for itself. Right? And what's the sentence? Going into exile. They're going to go into Babylon. That's the sentence for Israel. They're going to, they're going to face the judgment. And we're going to talk more in later chapters about what that looks like. We're going to expand on that a little bit. But what's the verdict? They're guilty. So then here comes the question for us. Are we guilty like Jerusalem? Are we guilty like the people of Jerusalem? Do we find ourselves in this same position? And, and this, is, um, this is something that you, we need the Holy Spirit to help guide us in, right? But the first thing I want to say is Jeremiah is speaking to a community. Uh, he's, he's talking to a community of individuals, but he, he's giving them a history lesson of the community, right? So in some sense, we, we need to apply that as well. Think about this at a community level. And the biggest one is, is the people of God, right? Jerusalem is the people of God. So we as a church ask the question, are we following idols? Are the things we're putting above God? Uh, are, we, are we trusting in foreign things, that God, foreign powers that God has, not, has told us not to do? Are we trusting in something God has told us not to trust in? And then are we, are we engaged in violence and oppression? Or is that part of our, right? And that's us as a church, and then the, the, the big church, right? And then us as, as a church here, right? We have to evaluate that as well. And in that community, we see that, in fact, there's a special uh, condemnation against the leaders, right? There is a special condemnation against the leaders. And there are people in the community who are going to be vindicated. And we, we, we read the passage about, you, you have oppressed the the poor, the innocent poor, you've, they, you've accused them of breaking into your house, so you've killed them when they've done no such thing. And in Jeremiah, we do see some vindication of the poor, right? So there, are, there might be some who, who could say, I, I'm a, um, right, a, oppressed and oppressor is a real category in the Bible. We should not forget that, right? And so there are some people that, if you say, you know what, I, I've been wronged, I want you to know that God sees that, and God knows that, and God will vindicate in judgment. There is a place for vindication. But Jeremiah goes on to say, as he looks through Jerusalem, he says, everybody has done wrong. Everybody has turned away. Rich and poor alike. So just if you find that spot, you're, you're placed in that spot, you can't say, well, I, I've done nothing wrong. Because Jeremiah is clear to say, no, it's everybody. This is whole scale. At some level, there's a condemnation here. What are some maybe ways that we could do this, right? Uh, no matter who you are, right? Maybe, and, may, and maybe this is mostly pointed at somebody like me, right? But I, I've just, I grew up in the church. I've had all the opportunity. God has given me every opportunity I could to follow him, right? And so for me to throw that away would be especially offensive 
So maybe, that's, maybe you're in that sort of position, right? But I think this applies to everybody. But what are some exchanges we make? Well, if we think about it in terms of sexuality, right? God has given us the gift of a covenant marriage with our spouse, right? Or if you're single, he's given you sanctified singleness that he can use for his glory that's holy and pleasing to God. And we're willing to exchange it in for a lie, the lie of pornography or something else, right? Or of wealth. God has given us true wealth. Not necessarily physical wealth, but a, a true abiding wealth in, in the spiritual blessings he's lavished on us in Jesus. And yet we would exchange that for temporary wealth that thieves can break in and steal and moths can destroy. We see Jesus' warnings against that. Or we exchange the, the peace that we have from God for just an anxious fretting and motion. Or we exchange the right and good respect and awe of God and desire to please him for a fear of people. Or we exchange time with God in prayer for a few more clicks on our phone, see what else is on our feed, right? We do this exchange, and mostly we exchange God's way for our way. And how do our defenses look to God? I'm innocent. I don't know. So what's our verdict? You and the Holy Spirit can answer that. But... It's not the end of the story. There's another exchange available. If I make in life, if I make a really bad trade, let's say I I go to the store and I spend piles of money on something that really is just garbage, right? Now, maybe I can go and exchange it back if the store is really well, but right? If you just, in life, if you just make a big mistake like that, it's just, you you lost, right? But what does God do? God says, you made a a trade? I'm going to hold off an offer. Say, well, let's do another exchange. Let's do another exchange, God says. No matter where, no matter how bad the trade you've made, let's make another exchange. And he shows that he sends Jesus. Jesus is one and only true son. And Jesus comes to the earth and he lives the perfect life. And then he dies on our behalf. He dies as our substitute. And then he is raised to new life. And because of that, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we put our faith in what he has done for that, another kind of exchange occurs. The guilt that we have accrued, the guilt that's, that because of we did also break this relationship, it goes on Jesus. Jesus bore it on the cross. And the life that Jesus lived, his perfect, righteous, eternal life that he now has, becomes ours. It's just, as, as, for as long as we turn back and make the wrong trade, it's just one second to turn around and say, God, I put my faith and trust in you. And God receives that, and he accepts that, and, and, and we'll see, what does that look like next week? We'll talk about repentance more. But it's just another, God offers us another exchange, and it's available to us through faith. And then Christian, you've already made that decision, but it is still a daily walk to say, what am I, am I trading God for something else? And the big idea I want us to see is that it's crazy, it's insane to trade God for anything else. By comparison, anything else is hevel. It's worthlessness. And if you set that up as your highest good, it's going to let you down. But God will never let you down. God is here. He does save. He does restore. He brings back. Brings us back to where we need to be. He brings us back to the promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I, I just do thank you so much for the gospel. That, although... 
we really do, we really are guilty, Lord. Uh, you wash away our guilt. You forgive our sins in Jesus. Help us to um, just value you above everything else. Honor you above everything else. Help, it's, it's, it's the same thing to do. It's the wise thing to do to put you above all other things. Help us to do that. Please continue to forgive us as we fail, which we do. It's by your grace that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for our final song. Amen. God has set us free. He set us free. He has called us his children, his sons and his daughters. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that is, that is your identity. We, we just get to live out of that reality. That means we keep going back to our Father again and again, and he keeps loving us as a faithful Father that he is. Well, thank you so much for coming. Again, the, the annual business meeting here is going to be 1115. We're going to start on the dot, okay? So start coming back in here at 1110. There's a lot of business to get through. Be back in here when you can. Thanks, you're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.